Welcome to the Wisdom and Wellness Parsha podcast, a weekly Eden Center podcast featuring Rabbanit Shani Tarragon with insights from the Parsha about women's health, relationships, mikveh and well-being. This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center that is transforming the mikveh experience by educating women how to use mikveh as the natural platform it is to connect to women's health, well-being and healthy relationships. Read our weekly blogs on a range of fascinating topics, download our wonderful publications, learn about our Balaniyot and Kala teacher trainings, and support us at theedencenter.com. Rabbanit Shani Tarragon has been a leading force in women's Torah learning and in Eden's work, and we are honored to combine two of her passions, Torah education and empowering us about women's health and well-being. Without further ado, Shani. Welcome to Eden's Wisdom and Wellness for Women Parsha podcast. In this week's Parsha, or I should say Parshiot of Acharimot and Kedoshim, we see a transition from everything that we've been speaking until this point about with regard to Kedusha taught through the Mikdash. Beginning in Parsha Acharimot, Perak Yudchet, we find that the Torah addresses what Kedusha is like beyond the Mikdash, how it's not meant just to be contained within the walls of the Mishkan itself, but rather is supposed to affect our lives even beyond. And therefore, we find that right after opening the parsha, teaching Aharon, Bezot Yavo Aharon Alakodesh, Acharimot Shnei Bnei Aharon, even after the deaths of Aaron, which I can imagine only instilled fear in the people, a certain sense of withdrawal from the Mishkan, Hashem says, on the contrary, come in, come into the Kodesh Kodashim, but do it my way at the right time and according to the commandments of Hashem. Immediately thereafter, Hashem also instructs us that we can even slaughter in our backyards and bring vacuum-packed korbanot to the Beit HaMikdash or to the Mishkan. Rather, everything has to be done in the center of the Mishkan. Everything has to be done on Hashem's turf. Those are Prakim Tedzayin and Yudzayin 16 and 17 in Parshat Acharimot. We turn though to chapter 18 and all of a sudden we see a major change. No longer terminology of purity and impurity, no longer terminology of sacrifices. Rather, this time Hashem says, stay away from the culture of the other nations. And we're going to see that in order for us to appreciate the flow from chapter 18 to chapter 19, which begins with Kedoshim to you, Hashem commanding us that we can be holy on our own, as opposed to everything that we've been seeing until now, Parshiot Shmini, Tazriya, Mitzorah, Hashem has basically defined when we're holy, when we're not, what types of emissions render us Tameh versus Tahor. Here Hashem says, now I want you not just to relate to these ideas of God-mandated, Kedusha, Tum'ah, Tahara, rather, Kedoshim Tihyu, you become Kadosh on your own. And this is going to be an endless task. Kedoshim Tihyu, constantly strive to work on this. And how do we do it? Well, stage number one is chapter 18. Stay away from the cultures of Egypt and from Canaan. And then we find an interesting list, a list of different arayot, promiscuous relations ranging from incest to not sleeping with two sisters to not sleeping with your wife when she's a nida. 
because this apparently was the culture that defined the other cultures. And Hashem says, you can't develop your own culture until you rid yourselves of the culture of the other nations, the ones that you were exposed to until this point, and the ones that you will imminently be exposed to. And then we hear Perikutet, Kedoshim Tihiyu. Now you can create your own culture. Once you rid yourselves of external influences, now focus on your own. And if you look at what seemed to be just a laundry list of mitzvot in chapter 19, they actually contain mitzvot ben adam lamakom, mitzvot ben adam lachavero, mitzvot to enhance our relationship with God, and also between us and our fellow man, together with chukim mishpatim, even certain laws that we're not really sure what their function is within society, but God says this is about being sensitive to holiness around you. And each of these now are going to be mitzvot that are defined through our own choices of behavior. Respect your parents, observe the Shabbat. It's not as if our parents have an inherent holiness, but our choice to respect them or fear them, makes us holy. And only after chapter 19 do we hear about chapter 20. We hear in chapter 20 of the list of the same promiscuous relations that we found in chapter 18, but this time they're accompanied with the consequences, with the punishments that will be enacted. And therefore, for example, if we take a look at the Nida, we found in Parakutret that it's forbidden for a man to sleep with a woman during her seven days of Nidut. And in chapter 20, we hear the famous Pasuk, A man who arouses the woman's makor, her uterus, They both receive the punishment of karet. And the question is, obviously, why don't we have these consequences mentioned earlier? But now that we understand that there was a chapter in between, first we rid ourselves of outside influences, then we develop our own culture. Only once we have our own culture can we then demand and basically expect consequences. Then we must take responsibility for our actions. Then we have to secure that culture of Kedusha within ourselves. I'd like to address over the next little while three different ideas that we find in Parshat Acharimot and Kedushim that basically give us a whole picture as to wisdom and wellness, really, not just for women, but for everyone. The first idea I'd like to address is actually that of Perek Chaf Pasuk Yudchet that we just read, the idea of recognizing that there are going to be consequences for our actions. If the first time that we saw Nida in last week's Parsha, if you remember, in Parsha Tazria, where we saw that a woman who gives birth is Tmei'ah, like Anida. And then we saw at the end of Parsha Mitzorah, a menstruating woman is Tmei'ah for the sake of being limited from going to the Mikdash. Then here, in a Parshat Acharimot, in a Perikudchet, we hear that she is also forbidden to her husband, which is why we continue to observe these laws today, even though we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. And then we hear about the consequence, which is very scary, which is karet, which uh, the Rishonim actually debate. What is this punishment of karet? Is it that the, uh, the person dies young? Do they lose their chilek, their portion in the world to come? Do their children die early? No matter what it is, this is very scary. And maybe it's also the unknown that makes this all the more scary and fearful for someone. Somewhat so that as I teach kalot and madrichot kalot, 
I always tell them, be a little wary of karit phobia. Because sometimes when we read these psukim and we hear the consequences, naturally we want to be as stringent as possible. We want to be so careful with the laws of Nida. I'm not sure whether or not this color is okay or not okay. You know what? I'm just going to be stringent with myself and I'll wait another day. Sometimes it means, nay, waiting another seven clean days, which we know can affect certainly shalom bayit, which can certainly also have an effect on a woman's fertility because in fact she may miss ovulation as a result. And it's true that the Torah warns us there are punishments, there is karit, but then again, keep the mitzvot. You don't necessarily have to be overly stringent, and particularly within the laws of Nida, Chazal created so many different guidelines for us and fences for us to make sure that we would not override the biblical mandates of Nida, Zava, and therefore can to learn these halachot. That's one message that we certainly see through the progression of the parshiot. But I'd like to actually go back and begin with uh, another another mitzvah that we find in this week's parsha, a mitzvah that we see in Perak Yudchet, chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, speaking about ridding ourselves of the culture of the other nations, we're told, et mishpatai tasu, don't follow the chukim, the mishpatim, don't do what the other nations do, their laws, their strange customs, rather keep the statutes of God, follow the statutes that Hashem has commanded you with, and follow these statutes that one should do and live with him, says Hashem. And the question is, what does this mean and live with him? Rashi explains that these are mitzvot that are supposed to provide us really with life. But one can argue, sometimes we see that a person may die even when one fulfills mitzvot and therefore, Rashi explains, Vachaybaem Ani Hashem is not just re- referring to, and not to living in this world, but as Rashi explains on the Pasuk, Hamekayem et Torah, Yeshlo Olam Haba. He is going to merit living in the next world, Lo Olam Haba, because in fact, Im Tomar Olam Hazeh, every person in the end dies. So, what does Vachaybaem mean? In the end, you'll have eternal life through following the mitzvot. The Rashbam, however, explains, In other words, if you observe the Torah, you really will live even in this world. If you don't observe the words of the Torah, then you'll be cut off from this world. The Ramban as well explains that Chaybahem is referring to living in this world. Keep the mitzvot, and these mitzvot help you live. They enable you to live both personally and also engage within society. They teach you how to edify yourselves. These are mitzvot Hashem is telling us and encouraging us Chaybahem. That our mitzvot, the mitzvot of Judaism, are mitzvot that provide us with wholesome life and lifestyle. And therefore, what we find is that it's not just about v'chaybahim, that we earn rewards for observing the commandments, but Ibn Ezra adds, Rakiyalech <laughs> 
By observing the commandments, you'll be able to live both in this world and the next world. But what's interesting is that Chazal explain that Vachai Bahim is not just about living in this world or the next world, it's also about sanctifying our lives. It's about teaching us about the value of life. Vachai Bahim teaches that we're commanded to even transgress mitzvot in order to save lives. Here we see one of the primary aspects of the value of Jewish life that we learned from this week's parsha. You're meant to live through the mitzvot. What does that tell us? Yes, value life. And as we know, this means that we're supposed to even, at times, not keep mitzvot in order to make sure that we're going to live. So what are some of these cases? These basically are any cases other than overriding the transgression of shvichut amim, giloi arayot, and avodah zarah. If we're asked to... uh, cannot transgress or cannot not observe the the mitzvot, for example, of nida, which are amongst the arayot, then better to die, as Rabbi Akiva explains, because a life without those mitzvot is not a life worth living. A life of avodah zarah is not a life worth living, and then you give up your life for it. But other mitzvot, v'chai bahim overrides them. We're supposed to sanctify life. So for example, we even learn from a Sefer Malachim, where there was a Ra'av in Shomron and Malachim Bed, Perek Vav. And we see that people were eating even non-kosher animals. The Ralbag explains, It was a very long siege. And people were dying because of the famine. And therefore, the Torah says, bahim, that at a time of sakana, at a time of grave danger, one is allowed to transgress, for example, the prohibition of eating non-kosher food. One of the most famous, though, is certainly the idea of Chilul Shabbat. The Tosefta Masechet Shabbat teaches us, Im horgin nefesh lahachiyot nefesh besafek, din shabbat lahachiyot nefesh besafek. That if there are times that and we even will go to it's killing lahachayot nefesh if there is a possibility of keeping someone alive. Again, we go to great extremes and extends so to then. Again, for the sake of Shabbat. And what's interesting is that we find that the Tosefta brings two different cases or two different opinions with regard to what this value of desecrating Shabbat is for the sake of, for the sake of life. We find Rabbi Shimon ben Manasya and Rabbi Yehuda in the name of Shmuel. Rabbi Shimon ben Manasya says, Vishamru ben Yisrael et Shabbat. From here we see that it's better for us, Lachalel Shabbat Achat, Shabbatot Better to desecrate one Shabbat in order to fulfill many Shabbatot. Rav Yehuda says in the name of Shmuel, Vachai Bahem, Veloshehamut Bahem. No, the source for desecrating Shabbat is not Vishamru B'nai Yisrael at Shabbat. It's this week's parsha of Vachai Bahem. And what's the difference between them? Rabbi Shimon ben Benassia is saying that one should desecrate a Shabbat if you know that you'll be able to fulfill other Shabbatot. But if you're not sure if the person is going to survive, maybe you cannot desecrate the Shabbat. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda says in the name of Shmuel, even if you're not 100% sure that your life-saving attempts that will desecrate the Shabbat will actually ensure the survival, you should still undergo those attempts, even if you don't know for sure that they're going to work, because that should be your directive.
And that's why this is of utmost significance for various halacha questions that come up for certainly organ donations and again, heart surgeries. Can one actually undergo a heart transplant or a heart donation? We know that it must be done when the heart is still pumping. So at what point do we consider the person dead or alive? And now here we find whether it's circulatory death, neurological death, why is this so significant? Because v'chaybahim, Rava el Yashiv, Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, both paskin that kviat mavet, that the time of death is determined by the end, the cessation of breathing, in which case you cannot take out gandhi, a person's heart and a transplanted or basically undergo that organ donation of a heart to someone else because of a chaybahim, because otherwise you are taking away the life of that other person. And uh, there are various explanations and examples that are given, but note then how this week's Parsha of Vachaybahim teaches us about the value, the sanctity of life, of life together with mitzvot that are supposed to help us live, but Vachaybahim even overrides the Shmirat mitzvot in a case where otherwise we wouldn't be able to survive. But what's so interesting is that we read Acharemot and Kedushim together, and just in the very next chapter, on one hand, we hear Vachai Bahim, but we also hear of other expressions of life and the importance of ensuring the survival of life. We learn, as we know, in Perak Yutet, we also see the mitzvah of chapter 19, verse 16, of our interactions with others, lo telech rachil ba'amecha, lo ta'amod al dam re'echa. Not only do you have to live, you also have to make sure that your fellow man lives. And we know that these psukim continue with the edict that we hear the echoes of during Svirata Omer in the name of Rabbi Akiva, Be'avta l'recha kamocha, two verses later, love your fellow man like yourself. So if ahaybahem, if you have to live with mitzvot, then so too, your fellow man also has to live. Which is going to serve as the segue for our next discussion, the perspectives on live kidney donations. And I'd like to dedicate this component of the of our Parsha podcast to the founder and chairman of the Gift of Life Association, Matnat Chaim, which provided for, which has provided so far for over a thousand kidney donations. And this was uh, founded by Rava Yeshaya Heber, who passed away just one week ago at the age of 55 due to the coronavirus. So uh, in his memory, and with all this chuyot, we address this idea of whether or not one may, can, should, must donate a kidney. Based on this pasuk in the Torah, lo tamod al dam one is not allowed to stand idly by our neighbor's blood. So if one knows of someone who is in need of a kidney and decides not to donate, does he violate the prohibition against standing idly by his neighbor's blood? And assuming that there is no obligation to donate a kidney to someone in need, is it permissible even to donate in light of the risks involved in removing a kidney? Well, in order to answer these questions, we have to explore what this prohibition of the parsha is. What does it mean to stand idly in by my friends in a life-threatening situation? Let's try it to understand how far one must go to save a life and how far one may go to save a life. The main sugya, the centerpiece for this discussion about the nature of the mitzvah of saving a life is found in Mesechet Sanhedrin, Dafa Ayin Gimel 73, 
Amid Aleph. According to the Gemara, the mitzvah of saving a life is included in the mitzvah of Hashavat Aveda, the mitzvah of returning a lost item. If we must return a lost item, how much more so must we restore the waning life of another individual? Yet the mitzvah of saving a life contains a feature that is not apparent in the mitzvah of Hashavat Aveda. When it comes to saving a life, one must even hire help if necessary in order to attempt this life-saving mission. Whereas this is not required when it comes to Hashavat Aveda. So then the question arises by noting that there is an added feature in the mitzvah of saving a life that one must even hire help. Is the Gemara implying that this is the only difference between Hashavat Aveda and saving a life? Or is this feature reflective of a general principle that one must make all types of extraordinary efforts to save a life? And obviously, there will be many practical issues related to this question. For example, if hiring help is only is the only characteristic that distinguishes saving a life from Hashavat Aveda, then a rescuer need not risk his own life to save someone else. However, if hiring help is only an example of extra effort that one must make to save a life, perhaps one is even obligated to risk his own life to save someone else. The Talmud Yerushalmi addresses this issue and explains that Rav Imi was captured in a dangerous area. Area. This is in Mesecha Trumot, Perekhet, Halachadalid. And Rav Yochanan said when they heard that Ravimi was in this situation, oh, again, wrap him up already in shrouds. In other words, there's no way to, again, to save him. It's a, a terrible state. Whereas Rav Shimon ben Lakish responded, he said, I will either kill or be killed. I will go with might and I will save him. No, I'm going to go to every extent possible, even though it meant putting his own life in danger for even the possibility, again, of saving someone else. The Hagot Maimaniot discusses and comments on the story, and he says, from here we learn it's obligatory to undertake some degree of risk in order to save a life. But what's interesting is that the Shulchan Aruch does not mention this idea of a Hagot Maimaniot, and therefore it seems that there in fact is a machloket, a machloket amongst the Rishonim with regard to when, who must undertake some degree of risk to save a life. And uh, this uh, is, uh, in fact, the uh, machloket not only between various Rishonim, but between various Achronim. Rav Moshe Feinstein, for example, says that one is not obligated to risk one's life in order to save someone else's life. Nevertheless, it's permissible to do so. As such, the incident that we just recorded in the Talmud Yerushalmi is not really a proof that one must risk one's life in order to save someone else's. Because even though Rav Shimon ben Lakish risked his own life in order to save Rav Imi, it's possible that he didn't do so out of obligation, but rather on his own volition. So how can we relate live kidney donations to the discussion about risking one's own life in order to save someone else's? To what extent? Donating a kidney entails a certain degree of risk. In surveys done in over 10,000 kidney donations, two to three donor deaths were reported. If we assume that one must undertake a certain degree of risk in order to save a life, one then cannot absolve himself or herself from the obligation to donate a kidney based on the risks associated with donating a kidney. If we assume that there is no obligation to risk one's life in order to save someone else's, then ostensibly one is exempt from donating a kidney to someone in need, although according to Rav Moshe Feinstein, he may certainly donate it voluntarily. Nevertheless, and the question is also, is one exempt from donating a kidney on the basis of the risk to the donor? 
Halacha has a certain threshold as to what is considered a significant risk. Thus, to prevent risk of a life, one may violate, as we know, a Torah prohibition, v'chaybahim. But if the risk to life is negligible, one may not violate a Torah prohibition. According to Rav Akiva Eger, any risk that is less than one in a thousand is not considered a risk that allows one to violate a Torah prohibition. As such, the remote risk of death from kidney donation is not a valid exemption from the mitzvah of saving a life. However, there are other factors that must be considered. For example, example, the scope of the exemption of undertaking the risk. That maybe not only is there no obligation to risk one's life, but there's no obligation that will to perform an action that will cause one physical distress or cause one to become ill in order to save a life. Anna Rav David Freeman in She'ilat David on Evan Ha'ezer explains exactly this. Kidney do- donations do cause a great deal of discomfort for the donor and therefore, according to the discomfort would be grounds for exempting one from donating a kidney. According to the Radvas, there is no obligation to relinquish a limb in order to save someone else's life. If there is a risk to your own life involved, sacrificing a limb is even considered what he says a foolish act. This is certainly relevant to live kidney donations because in the early years of kidney donations, we find, for example, the Minchat Yitzchak, and this is in 1961, Rav Yitzchak Yaakov Weiss authored a tshuva prohibiting donating a kidney, stating that this is very dangerous. Whereas, again, there's definitely a risky procedure, and therefore he said this would be prohibited. Rav Avadi Yosef in 1980 noted that the risk involved in donating a kidney has diminished. And therefore, according to Rav Avadi Yosef, a 1% morbidity rate is not considered a significant enough risk to prohibit kidney donations. Therefore, one receives a mitzvah for donating a kidney, but is not obligated to do so. And therefore, when we think of these psukim, both in parshat acharimot v'chai bahim, and then we hear in the very next parsha, lo tamor al-dam re'acha, we appreciate all the more how the Torah underscores the significance of life, of every single life. Right after this week of Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzma'ut, we can't celebrate life. We can't celebrate national personal survival unless we show the proper credit and respect for those who have lost their lives. May we have the schut as we learn these parshiot of Acharim Mot and Kedushim to understand not only the juxtaposition between the death and what it means then, Kiddushim, literally to sanctify our behaviors as a mode of sanctifying life. May we learn and be able to apply this. Shabbat Shalom to everyone. Is there someone in your life that you want to honor? Someone who has helped you out or inspired you? Maybe it's a medical professional or a teacher or a Yoetzet who went above and beyond to help you, or a yard site or death that you want to mark, please consider making a donation to support this podcast in honour of a special person in your life. This episode of Wisdom and Wellness was recorded by Shani Tarragon, music courtesy of Shimona Gottlieb, and is a product of the Eden Centre. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating Share this podcast on social media and encourage others to subscribe. We welcome your feedback, sponsorships and support. 
you can reach us at www.theedencentre.com. <laughs>